Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Appreciate so much the message of having Christ as our vision. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the emphasis of the academy is to mentor God-fearing leaders into the ministry, to have that proper understanding of the, the greatness of God, but also His goodness. And one of the things that we emphasize with the college, with our seminary, is the classroom outside the classroom. The life-touching life of building relationships and how vital that is. And I want us to consider this morning the importance of investing in one another through relationships. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you are using the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 827. Our theme for this year is investing for eternity. We've looked at a number of areas that we can do that, how to do that, how to apply our time, how to keep our focus. But I want us to consider the importance of life-touching life with an eternal focus. In Washington, D.C., it's a city filled with a number of statues that commemorate notable individuals. They talk about, they recognize the history of our nation. In the book, The Masculine Mandate, the author highlights two of the statues that when considered together actually tell a unique story. The memorial for General Ulysses S. Grant is an impressive statue. It's placed at the east end of the reflecting pool. In the morning, it is quite literally in the shadow of the Capitol building. And sitting there is Grant on his war stallion. He symbolizes human will during a very stormy and tumultuous time in our nation's history. His military leadership was decisive to the Union victory during the Civil War. And you see this very prominent statue. But about two and a half miles away in Rollins Park, there's a statue of a man for whom the small park is named, Major General John Rawlins. His statue has had eight different locations in Washington, D.C. It's rarely noticed by visitors. In fact, I personally don't remember ever seeing it, though I know I've been within a couple of blocks of this statue on numerous occasions. But Rawlins was a lawyer in Galena, Illinois, where Grant lived prior to the Civil War. Rawlins knew Grant, and he knew Grant's character flaws, especially Grant's weakness for alcohol. And so at the beginning of the war, Rawlins got Grant to commit that he would abstain from drunkenness. And while there were many times that the general was tempted to fall away from that promise, Rawlins would plead with him, encourage him, and even protect him from negative influences so that he would hold the course that he had agreed to. Rawlins' memorial may appear inconsequential, 
when compared to the impressive structure and, and honor that is paid to Grant. But without Rollins' support and encouragement and even protection, it is doubtful that Grant would have attained to the success that he did. In fact, it was actually Grant who, who pushed for the erecting of the statue to honor John Rawlins. You know, our culture loves to honor the individual. But it often takes a team, it takes others, and frankly, God has made us to be relational beings. We need other people, and other people need us. This is especially true when it comes to the spiritual battle. We need that just in, in temporal, temporal things. But how much more for spiritual success? You know, the Bible, biblical definition of humility is recognizing that God and others are actually responsible for the achievements in my life. Because none of us would be where we were, are without the input, the encouragement, the investment of others. As we were discussing the mission statement for International Baptist College and Seminary and, and fine-tuning that, there were, there were men in that room that had been part of the original discussion. They said, this is actually moving it forward in what we're seeking to do. That was a tremendous encouragement to me because it's like, I know I am standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before. We are seeking to move forward in that. And one of the areas that we need one another is in the area of relationships. One of the marks of a godly individual is a person who has godly relationships. And, and that there are other Christians with whom we are connected to intentionally invest in our lives and that we are investing in theirs. This is what we find when we come to 2 Timothy chapter 2. As Paul is admonishing his spiritual son in the faith. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I begin reading in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who's enlisted him to be a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say. And may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Let's look to the Lord. Father, as we look into your word, we pray that you would give us understanding in all things, that we would apply your word personally and practically to where we live, that we would invest in the lives of others for your glory. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen. I want us to consider the eternal investment that we have through relationships. What we see in this passage is that God's grace enables you to develop relationships that will result in eternal fruit. There are four analogies that are being used in these verses that Paul is using to convey to Timothy, his spiritual son, how he needs to move forward. And they really provide instruction for us in how relationships can produce that, that everlasting, that eternal fruit that we are investing in lives. We're investing in souls that will live somewhere forever. 
The first one that we see is that the skillful teacher deposits truth in faithful people. And I use the word deposit there because it's speaking of committing. And, and that's the idea through this letter, as Paul is admonishing Timothy earlier in the book, to, to guard the treasure that has been trusted to him. That this is, this is something that has been deposited. And, he, and so he's saying, the things that you have heard of me. But the first thing that I want us to notice is he's talking to his son. This is an intimate relationship. In verse 1, as he says, you therefore, my son. There, there is a close relationship. The, Timothy was his spiritual son in the faith. But this wasn't just a general appeal. This was somebody who, whose life had, he had touched very closely. Now, it's interesting. If you want to look back at chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, Paul begins by establishing his authority. In verse 1 of, of chapter 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. So he, he starts with his apostolic authority. But he immediately turns to that close relationship, to Timothy, a beloved son. While he establishes his authority, he emphasizes his compassion. This is his spiritual child. And so he's willing to confront Timothy because he cares about him. One of the things that we have to do, one of the things we seek to do through our academy and our, our college and seminary is have life touching life, and there are times you have to correct. And you find Paul doing that continually. He's admonishing Timothy. And so in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, stir up the gift of God, which is in you. In verse 7, he says, now don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. Verse 8, he says, do not be ashamed of the Lord or of me as prisoner. Now, it, there were times that I think Timothy was like, do I really want to be identified with Paul? I mean, he's a convict. He's in prison. Paul said, Timothy, don't be ashamed of, of the Lord or of me. I'm in prison because of my faith. He, he tells Timothy to hold fast to a pattern of sound words, which he's heard. He says that in verse 13. In chapter 2, we see the admonitions that are taking place in these opening verses. But if you look at verse 22, he's now admonishing him, flee youthful desires, flee youthful lusts. And then in chapter 3, he says, be careful to follow my doctrine, my manner of living. He says, Timothy, you've seen how I've lived. Follow that. And then he comes on with a very strong appeal in chapter 4. He says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to, live, he's going to judge the living and the dead, preach the word. He says, Timothy, this is what you have to do. That's a relationship. That's somebody that can come alongside and encourage, but can also correct. You know, a spiritual relationship and allows you to speak into the lives of others, to encourage them to serve the Lord, to confront their fears, to, to help them to hold fast to the truth. Say, so you can do this. To step out of their comfort zones to serve the Lord. To flee youthful desires and follow a pattern of godliness. So the question that I have for us is, who speaks into your life? Who is it that, that comes alongside, that, that can speak into your life, that, that has permission to confront you and say, don't go that way? You know, for that to happen, you have to be teachable. 
if you've ever taught, you find that not every student is teachable. You know, there, there are times, you, you know, when you're teaching, it's like and you're, you're correcting and they're like, well, I thought this, well, I think this. Like, okay, well, yeah, I know you had a reason for it. It was just a wrong reason. But if a person's not teachable, it's very difficult to invest in their lives. That, that there's always that excuse. You know, sometimes, you know, parents feed that in their students. Well, my child would never do that. Really? Would you have done it when you were their, their age? I mean, we all have a sin nature. But we need to understand that, that my, my mom taught kindergarten for many years and she would often say to the parents, she said, now, I, I won't believe everything your child says about you if you don't believe everything they say about me. You know, it's amazing how certain details get left out when they leave the school doors and when they get home. Or vice versa. Do we allow our children to be taught? To have others, humans, invest in their lives? You know, do we teach them how to handle the inequities of life? One of the things that we seek to do is, is develop character. You know, character development is far more important than classroom GPA or athletic ability. Do we have character? Are we developing that? People had spiritual and moral influence in Timothy's life. And, and Paul reminded him of that. He said, you, you've heard the Scripture since you were a child. Your mother and grandmother taught you. It, it's, it's pretty obvious as you read Scripture that Timothy's father was probably not a believer. But he had spiritual investment in his life. And Timothy grew. You know, we, we need people that will be a, a positive influence in our lives. People are not neutral. So who influences you? You know, that's one of the reasons it's so important to be involved, to be connected with an adult Bible fellowship, with a care group. We, we try to structure things, our, our prayer times, our, our prayer meeting service, our men's prayer breakfast, our ladies' Bible study, where you can get connected with people who can talk into your life. You know, what, what is the influence of your friends? Do they encourage you on the right road, the road of godliness? Do they help direct you and say, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, what, what is the, the influence? You know, it's a big deal. And we need to have people that aren't just going to encourage us to have a good time, but that help direct us in spiritual things. You know, here, here you have, a, have Paul speaking into the life of Timothy. Do you have a Paul that talks to you? Somebody that can come alongside and, and encourage you. you know, to say, don't be fearful. You can do this. You can serve the Lord. Don't, don't allow the spirit of fear to control you, Timothy. Don't give in to your fleshly desires. Flee youthful desires. It was John Rawlins who sought to protect Grant from those who would tempt him in the areas of his weakness. In fact, it's been said that he had blunt, wrathful words for those who would put in Grant's way temptation that he knew would be dangerous. Rollins knew Grant's weaknesses. And he would get in the face of people who would try to lead him astray. Do you have somebody like that? Are the people who influence you people who are going to direct you in the things of God? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. People are not morally neutral. I've told our, our high school kids, it's better to be alone than have the wrong friends. 
But you know, you're not neutral either. So what is your influence on others? Are you a change agent for godliness? Because that, what we see is we need to intentionally teach spiritual truth to others. So to whom are you intentionally investing spiritual truth that you've received? You know, your friendship with the Lord should be the test of your friendship with others. It ought to strengthen you and equip you for serving the Lord. And one of the marks of a godly person is his commitment to biblical friendships. And especially for us as men, because we're, we tend to be less relational. And yet we need that. Do you remember David and Jonathan in the Old Testament? I mean, talk about an unlikely friendship. David was younger than Jonathan. He was, he was the underclassman. He was the youngest. David was the youngest of seven or eight sons. And he was actually even ignored by his own family. He was from a different background. Here's Jonathan growing up with, with the king. He's the son of the king. And David's a shepherd. And when David came before Saul, Saul asked, who's your dad? He wanted to know his pedigree. Jonathan saw David's character. And that's what united their hearts. Because when you read through the Old Testament, the end of 1 Samuel chapter 13, you read that, that there were no blacksmiths in Israel at that time. The Philistines were controlling the country, and, and because of that, they had done away with the blacksmiths because they knew that the blacksmiths could make swords and spears, and they wanted a, a disarmed population. So there were two swords in Israel. Saul had one, and Jonathan had the other. And as you read through, you come into chapter 14 and you find that, that Jonathan attacks the Philistines. He's the only one with a sword. Him, Jonathan and his armor bearer go against them and he creates a great victory and puts the Philistines to flight and the armies are now pursuing them because of Jonathan. That's the character of Jonathan. You jump over a couple more chapters to chapter 18 after David defeats Goliath. Most of us are familiar with that. But when Goliath comes out blaspheming the name of God, David comes out and says, somebody needs to shut that guy's mouth. God's honor is at stake. And David had spent so long looking at the Lord that, John, that, that Goliath didn't look like a giant to him. His eyes were upon the Lord. And so when David defeats Goliath, he goes back to Saul, and it says at the beginning of chapter 18 that Jonathan's heart was knit to David's. Why was that? Because he saw a kindred spirit and character. A man that was willing to do what it was necessary for the glory of God. We need to, to be investing in people like that and then encouraging them to step out of their comfort zone. Pastor Scott talked to our board on, on Friday and commented one of the things they try to do is move, move people from where they're comfortable to where they need to be going. You know, that's what the Lord does to us. Because ministry is about investing in the lives of others. That a person who does not desire to invest time, labor, energy in the life of another person is really not a biblical friend. Because, as Pastor Nathan mentioned, the example of Jesus Christ is that servant leader investing in others. He came to serve. Jonathan was sensitive to David's needs. 
You know, there's, there's that aspect. And so the, un, the picture of a skillful teacher who's investing in others. But second thing I want us to see is in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, that a worthy soldier strives to really accomplish Christ's purpose. The analogy of a battle. And, and the soldier picture is throughout the, the letters that Paul writes to Timothy. As he tells them in, in chapter 1, verse 18 of the first letter, Wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. The Christian life is, is on a battlefield. It's not a playground. That's why in the evening services we've been looking at putting on the whole armor of God. And, and the word here that you must endure hardship, the Greek word actually expresses the idea of join me in the battle is what Paul is telling Timothy. Share in the hardship as a good soldier. So we're seeking to raise up God-fearing leaders. You know, that takes courage. To lead, to have influence in this culture is going to take courage. And it takes character. So don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked by that which is easy, even things that aren't wrong, but they entangle and take us away from the purpose. Are you more committed to honoring the Lord than to pleasing people? that he may please the one who's called him to be a soldier. Please the one who has called you. If, if you're a Christian, you've been called. And we want to hear, well done. And why would we hear that? Because we've pleased the one who's called us. And we, we, we train. And so that's what we're seeking to do with our college students. That's what we're seeking to do is raise up a generation. And, and, and when I was the college president and I would go out and recruiting, I'd say, you know, you know Arizona is a wonderful place to be in school in January, February, March, you know, April. Then they go home. The desert's a great place for education. It's not a good place for snowflakes. We're trying to raise up those who will stand in the battle. To live a life that is intentionally Christ-exalting. So do you encourage others to faithfully stand for the Lord? Is that what you're seeking to do? That one of the things that we talk about, and we talk about this at, at various levels in our educational process, is the danger of the null curriculum. The null curriculum is that which is left out in teaching. That what is taught is taught because of what's left out. You know, if you've ever taught, there are things you have to skip over. There are things you have to leave out. We never want to leave out the Word of God. We do not want Christ to be the null curriculum. And that's why I mentioned earlier the importance of being philosophically driven rather than pragmatic. The problem with pragmatism is it works. The question is, does it work for God's glory? Does it accomplish Christ's purpose? You know, there are, there, are things that are there are some things that are truly important that get taken for granted that we don't really even think about. You know, oxygen's pretty important. But most of us don't wake up in the morning thinking about it. Now, go without it for a very short time and you will be thinking about it. You know, if a person is ill, we often are checking their, their oxygen level. We want to see what's going on. And so while it's important, it's rarely stated, and what is rarely talked about goes without honor. Oh yeah, we know it's important, but we don't honor what we don't talk about. We cannot take Christ for granted. We can't say, oh yeah, we're about honoring Christ. 
Oh yes, we're about helping parents raise Christ-like young people. Oh yes, we're about raising up God-fearing leaders. No, we have to keep that front and center in everything we do. So do you intentionally try to help others take that next spiritual step? Where are they going? The third thing that we see, though, is the admirable, admirable athlete. That he keeps the rules. There has to be an obedience. If any, if also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You know, we, we are thrilled to see victories. I, I was excited with our young people yesterday and the victory. But we want them to keep the rules. We, we, expect the, we expect the refs to call it fairly. And, and we really don't, we're not impressed with somebody who wins if they cheat. In fact, there are baseball players that years ago set records and then you found out after the fact that, that they had been taking performance-enhancing drugs and there's an asterisk next to those records. And those are not names that we say, wow, that was impressive. And we said, well, they, they did something impressive, but they cheated. They had an unfair advantage. They cut the corners. How important it is that we don't cut corners. That's character development. Raising up young people that will do their best for the glory of God. So are you endeavoring to hear well done from the Lord who called you because you fulfilled the, the call faithfully? Are you endeavoring to hear that well done? good, faithful servant. Now, how are we doing at developing godliness? And then, are we encouraging others? Are we influencing others to develop godliness? You know, one of the aspects of a team is they encourage one another. We see that with our musical groups, our choir, our handbells, they encourage each other. They help each other. And how necessary that is. Because, you know, there are times, especially when you're getting, getting pushed, that you really don't want to go on. When I was in college, I played intramural soccer. And I enjoyed soccer, but I, I really didn't enjoy the running that we had to do in preparation. And our coach would, would often tell us that we had to meet at 9 o'clock in the evening. And we would run as a team. And to be on the team, you had to do this. And, and, and we would jog on the road that circled all of the fields. And going around, and we'd be in this long line, and it was a pretty slow pace. It was comfortable. But the problem was the last person in line then had to sprint to the front and then slow down, set the pace, and that would continue, and you'd keep doing this. And, you know, there'd be sometimes you'd think, well, I hope the whole team shows up so I don't have to do as many sprints. But the negative part of that is if the whole team showed up, then it was a longer line. So I have to sprint farther. And, and, you know, I didn't enjoy that. I didn't want to do that. And if I was just out there by myself and the coach had said, okay, run some sprints, I'd, I'd have run some, but I wouldn't have had to push myself. It's having a team that pushes you. Folks, we need that spiritually. We need others to help push us, to encourage us, to, to go beyond where we're comfortable, to step out of our comfort zone and to hold one another accountable. John Rawlins grew up in poverty. He had an absentee father who was prone to drink. And yet Rollins used his influence to be a friend to Grant to keep him from following that similar path. We need people who keep the rules. And the fourth analogy that's used is the persistent farmer who labors patiently for lasting fruit. 
As Paul brings, he's moving these pictures to say, Timothy, let me give you the big picture of what you need to do. He said the hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the, the fruits of the labor. And so in what specific areas are you diligently striving to develop spiritual fruit in your life? How are you developing that spiritual fruit? You know, you know, how many of you grew up on a farm or worked on a farm? How many of you have, been, have that background? I know a number of, yeah, a lot of hands, a number of you did. You know, what is the one thing that is not tolerated on the farm? Laziness. I mean, you lose respect very quickly if you don't pull your own weight. I grew up in a farming community. I didn't grow up on a farm, but we had a number of farmers in our church. I worked for several of them at different times and was involved in that. And, and I still remember working for a man one day, and, and he didn't think his son was moving quickly enough as he was headed out the door, and he lifted up his foot with his boot and really encouraged him <laughs> to move forward. Now, I do not recommend that as a motivational technique for our college, for our homes. But you know, there are times that we need a figurative Swift kick to get moving. It's the hard-working farmer. He's not lazy. Are you known for hard work? You know, in our culture, it's amazing. If you can find people who will just show up, you're excited. Let alone work hard. We're called to that. That's a character issue. One of the things that was drilled into me in college was the greatest ability is dependability. To be dependable, to show up where you're supposed to and then to do what you're supposed to do. Because it's the hard-working farmer. But the other thing we see is there's a patience that takes place. There's a, there's a need for that. And in whom are you patiently seeking to multiply the work of Christ? Planting seeds. Say, I'm not seeing fruit yet. No, but it takes time. Investing in the lives of others. Each of these analogies, pictures discipline, commitment, dedication, they're pictures of Christian character. And for the Christian, character is Christ-likeness. Your spiritual reward is not determined by your net worth. It's by your investment in lives. God's Word is eternal, and human souls are eternal. As we read in our Scripture, Thy Word is settled in heaven forever. And every one of us is going to spend eternity somewhere. So how much investment are you putting in the lives of others? You know, unless you're the student of history, and especially of the Civil War, you probably were not familiar with Major General John Aaron Rawlins. He was Grant's confidant. He was his closest advisor during the war. He served as Grant's Secretary of War after Grant became president. But when Grant became president, Rollins was ill. He had contracted tuberculosis. And he actually ended up dying five months after he began serving. But because of his tuberculosis, the doctors recommended that Rollins come here to Arizona hoping that the dry climate would prolong his life. And Grant wanted to appoint him as the commander of the Southwest Army. But Rollins said no. He refused. He wanted to stay by Grant's side. 
And during that short time, those five months, he spoke passionately about the plight of the the freed slaves. He sought to protect the Native Americans from cruel military officers. And he continued to work to protect Grant from negative influences. His statue was pushed forward by Grant. It was erected in that small park in November of 1874. There was no dedicatory ceremony. Today, his statue is just one of 18 Civil War monuments in Washington, D.C. Yet one historian, James Good, considers it one of the better portraits. He said, it has a certain elegance and spirit. Now, I'm not sure what he was looking at, but what I think is the spirit that is worth emulating is a friend who came alongside somebody else to see them go forward for the Lord. That's what our faculty, staff, administration seek to do. But that's what we're to do as a church. And not just for International Baptist College and Seminary, not just for Tri-City Christian Academy, but in the lives of everyone. Who are you investing in today? Because it's by God's grace that you are enabled to develop relationships, not for selfish reasons, but with an eternal focus. That God's grace enables you to develop relationships that will result in eternal fruit. Who are you investing in this morning? Who's investing in your life? Who have you allowed to get close to help encourage you to bring forth fruit that's eternal? Let's pray together.